years, we've had a chance to hear from uh, pastors and speakers throughout the country. Last year, last year, <laughs> last week, we heard from uh, Pastor Aaron Stritzel of Montana, though he's quite possibly en route to his new faith community in Colorado as we speak. And the week before that, we heard from Reverend Bill Schnell of Ohio. Technically, Ahwatukee is part of the country, so we're, we're part of the road trip series as well. Um, <laughs> If you don't know me, I'm Matt. I'm the worship director here, and I've never done a sermon before, but Jackie and I are, uh, it's worth mentioning at the outset, neither of us is seminary trained, but a thing that I love about the well is that it's a place where we can hear from a lot of different directions and different backgrounds, so today that's us. So I, I want to uh, give a little intro to what we're going to be talking about by starting with the origin of what we were originally going to talk about versus how we've honed it in. So Ryan invited us to speak uh, about six weeks ago, and he, he kind of gave us an, an open invitation of like, what are you interested in talking about? And so we were kicking around ideas, and I ultimately texted Ryan what we were going to talk about. I'm going to go ahead and read the title of what I said we were going to talk about, because it turns out it was a little too ambitious. So I texted him and I said, we're going to talk about gender dynamics of men and women in the Bible and how it relates to modern Christian families. As it turns out, that's actually a topic for a doctorate dissertation, not a 25-minute talk. <laughs> so we focused in, in a little bit, and given the holiday, it does seem like a really great day to talk about the gender roles of men in the Bible. So today is Father's Day, and I want to start by acknowledging that Father's Day is a complicated day for a lot of people. Not everybody still has a dad, or they may be estranged from them, and a lot of people would love to be dads, and it hasn't happened for them yet. And there are people in our community and elsewhere who fall outside the gender binary completely, or, you know, members of the LGBTQ plus community, these, these sermons on, like, masculinity or femininity in the Bible or whatever probably ring a little different. So I just want to name all of that at the outset. Personally, I spent a lot of time before I became a dad thinking about masculinity. It's, it's something that I've always had a complicated relationship to. I don't know if you can tell from looking at me or listening to me. I've never really been, like, the manliest dude in any room that I've been in. And I faced my share of, of shame and bullying and stuff growing up with that. So there are elements of masculinity that I know are valuable and need to be preserved. And there are elements that I think are, are toxic and, and ruinous. And I've devoted a lot of time to thinking about which are which. But especially when I found out I was going to be a dad, and especially, especially when I found out I was going to be a dad of a son... It's been pretty much every day since then I've thought about what does it mean to be a dad? What does it mean to be a man? And regrettably, there is one stream of Christianity that's very dominant right now that is sure that it knows the answers to this. So I have some super neat quotes here. I want to be clear, I'm not endorsing these quotes. These are just quotes to set up what I'm going to talk about. Um, I'm leaving out pastor names. You would know these names. These are, these are high-profile people, but I don't want to cause any more of a fuss than I need to. Uh, one influential pastor wrote that boys needed to be taught to be winners. Teaching, boy, teaching boys how to be good losers left you with a generation of young men who didn't want to fight for their country. A boy must be taught to fight, to be rugged enough to defend his home and those he loved. Another one wrote, 
that he couldn't stomach effeminate depictions of Christ as a delicate man with long hair and flowing robes. Jesus was a man with muscles. Christ was a he-man. I'm just going to sit with that sentence for a second. Um, both of these quotes are from a book that I just read called Jesus and John Wayne, How, Ev- How White Evangelicals Corrupted a Faith and Fractured a Nation by Kristen Copes Demez. I read it so that you don't have to. Um, it's a bummer. It's a really valuable and important book, but it, it really damaged my mental health the whole time I was reading it. Um, what Kristen Cobes Demez writes about in this book is basically the last 80 years of the Christian and especially evangelical ideas of masculinity because they've taken a, a, a turn in the last 80 years. It's, it's not how it always was. And these ideas involve rigid gender roles for men and women that are very siloed, very different from one another. There's usually an idea of like a return to an imagined ideal age of how, how it used to be when things were better. Uh, I'm not exactly sure when that is. The 50s might be it or like the frontier West or something. There's usually some idea that we need to get back to like a former day. And the, the really dark side of it is that there's a lot of hatred and mistrust for anybody who falls outside of these boxes and that's bled into our culture in a bunch of really problematic ways. What I find interesting is that this, these are all people who are supposed to be following Jesus, and if you, the biblical Jesus was gentle, humble, compassionate, you know, slow to anger, accepted you know, like physical affection and, and a kiss from like his male disciples, held children. I think this Jesus is kind of a hard sell for, for people in that that paradigm, and so they've spent the last 80 years inventing a different one. That's me. (laughs) So let's take a look at where this uh, version of macho Jesus came from in the Bible. So we're going we're gonna to focus in on, on two specific examples. Let's go ahead and start with Revelation. So up on the screen is a picture of Revelation. This is an artist depiction. And that, yeah, that kind of captures Revelation. Um, it's a highly symbolic, dreamlike, and controversial book. And in it, there's a, a depiction of a victorious warrior Christ who shows up on a horse with a sword in his mouth which is not OSHA approved. So if you have a sword, do not carry it in your mouth. Um, but in Revelation, we have this, this warrior Christ riding in on a horse. Um, at best, the book of Revelation is a, a document about persecution. It's a, it's a, a rebuke against the world's empires. And I think it's important to note that for for anyone who is citing Revelation as the document of where we should be um, as a society, as Americans, we are currently in the world's empire. So it's it's very fragile to align with the empire title if we are actually the empire. Um, At worst, this book is a fever dream. If you have ever read it, or more likely tried to read it, it is an absolute trip, y'all. Like, this is a wild ride. Um, 
And it's, it's one of those rare, rare stories, actually I think it would actually be the only story, where you have the Gospels, which gives you the documented life of Jesus. And then you have something that has not happened, something that may not happen in the book of Revelation. So there's the history, and then there's whatever Revelation is. So it's very, very questionable to, to put the image of Christ in this version versus the Gospels, where it's actually examples of how he lived. So the next one that we can focus on is when Jesus flips tables in the temple. Um, I, for one, have certainly cited this myself when I've, when I've flipped a metaphorical table. I've sadly never flipped an actual table. But it's a lot of people use this to justify their actions as far as, well, it's okay for me to be outraged and to have this outburst because Jesus did it in the, typo, in the temple. Um, in this incident, Jesus and his disciples went to the temple, and in it they found money changers inside the temple walls exchanging goods for money. And so they were profiting off of the faith and the faithful. Jesus got mad. Um, and, you know, that's, that's ultimately the event that kind of dominoed into his arrest and his death. Um, it's pretty important. It's, it's a really pivotal, pivotal event in the Bible because it's one of the very rare occasions when we see that side of Jesus. Um, it's an extremely human side of him to have that reaction emotion to something, which anger is a reaction. Um, and so it's, it's unique in that it's an opportunity to see an extremely human side of Jesus when he sees this, this injustice and something that is, is wrong within the faith. So uh, there is a really great video that we're going to watch. It's about three minutes long from uh, Pastor Colby Martin. So he leads a church in San Diego. He's actually spoken here before. And he does an amazing job of kind of summarizing how the event of, of the temple and, and the turning of the tables actually fits in modern society. Let's go ahead and take a look. The other day, someone on the internet got mad at me. He accused me of not actually believing the things that I say I believe. And he said that not only am I not a Christian, but I'm a modern day Sadducee, exactly the kind of person that Jesus fought with and also who got him murdered. Now, it's hardly the worst that people say about me, but on that particular day, I decided to reply. So after being accused of lying and hypocrisy, and after being told that I was the kind of person who got an innocent man murdered, I said to this guy, you're not very kind, at least here in this digital space. Maybe IRL is different. So perhaps that's a fruit of the spirit you might spend some quality time investing in. To which he said, it's not about being kind. It's about rebuking a person who is A, perverting the word of the Lord, and B, a hypocrite. And then he added, Jesus did it all the time. If you were legitimately a Christian, you would know this. Friends, can we talk about this perspective for a minute? I call this the fetishization of angry Jesus. It's when people use these stories of Jesus rebuking people or turning over the tables as justification for their own self-righteous, arrogant, prickish behaviors. And I should know, I'm one of them. I've done this very thing. But I'm trying to do it less often, and here's why. 
At the very least, Jesus was an incredibly enlightened spiritual thinker who possessed deep insights into the human condition. And at most, he was, you know, God incarnate. So even on his worst day, he was like a million times smarter and wiser than I am on my best day. So did Jesus call people hypocrites? Yeah, totally. And did he get really pissed off and flip over tables because poor folks are being ripped off by religious pretenders looking to make a buck? Yeah, he did that. But do I think I possess the same level of insight into the human heart that would justify similar judging and table flipping? Uh, I, I don't think so, probably not. But it's so tempting, isn't it? To use these examples of the angry Jesus to justify our sense of moral self-righteousness. And this seems to happen over and over again in these situations where there's like this established sense of what it means to be a decent human, you know, a kind of greed upon ethos of how to treat one another in a civilized society with decency and respect. But then here comes someone who honestly is just being a jerk, calling people names, judging people's character, all the while claiming some kind of moral superiority. And then if they get called out on it, like people are like, hey, uh, bro, everyone in the pool's pretty chill, enjoying themselves, and then you cannonball in and you haven't stopped splashing everyone's face, like, what's your deal? And they kind of just shrug their shoulders and say, what? Jesus called out hypocrites and flipped over tables, so I can too. Here's why I chose to say to this guy, you're not being very kind. The Apostle Paul listed kindness as one of the fruits of the Spirit, which is like a fancy way of saying, here's what your life looks like when you're living in harmony with God. People who fetishize angry Jesus, who use these few examples of Jesus getting bent out of shape as justification for their lack of decency, their lack of respect, they seem to think kindness doesn't matter because WWJD. And maybe that's the problem. Maybe it's time we slow down with the whole, what would Jesus do? Because unless you're ready to tell me that you are as grounded and intelligent and enlightened as Jesus was, well, maybe you shouldn't try and do everything that he did. But kindness, my gut tells me that's something that we're all capable of. And since kindness is a fruit of the spirit and uh, rebuking others and flipping tables are not, maybe we could spend more time being kind to one another and less time trying to convince ourselves that Jesus is totally cool with it when we name call, criticize, and judge people that we've never even met. So let's take a look at a truer representation of Jesus. So he's flipped the tables, and Jesus is now about to be arrested. When he's being arrested in all four Gospels, Simon Peter and his followers try to resist, and they assault the men who are arresting Jesus. Let's pause the scene there. You have Peter holding a sword. Notice that he's holding a sword. It's not carried in his mouth. And he's defending his God from their enemies. That's pretty mighty. That's pretty manly. But let's unpause the scene. Jesus immediately rebukes his disciples for doing that. In Matthew 26, 52, we read, Then Jesus said to him, Put your sword back into its place, for all who draw the sword will, will die by the sword. In Luke's gospel, Jesus actually heals a man who was injured after scolding his disciples. This Jesus forgives his enemies. He forgives them on the cross and he prays for them. Throughout the Gospels, he tells us that we are supposed to love our enemies. He tells us that if someone strikes us, we should offer the other cheek. 
These are not examples of the traditional warrior that we think of, but these are examples of a man who is certainly not weak or spineless. To bring it back to Father's Day, I think another element of Christ's ministry that's worth paying attention to is the way that he prayed, the way that he spoke to his Father in heaven. The, the way Jesus prays in the Gospels is not like a warrior demigod calling in reinforcements. He, it's always it's intimate, it's personal, it's vulnerable. Like He opens up about the things he's afraid of and then what's coming. And he frequently starts his prayers with the word Abba, which is Aramaic, the language Jesus spoke. And it means something like dad. It's a, it's a family term that like small children and then grown children would have used for their, for their fathers. It, it signifies like trust and, and closeness and an intimate relationship. And I'm fascinated by that because I know a lot about the period into which Jesus arrived. Um, I'm going to I could so nerd out on Second Temple Judaism, and I'm going to attempt to resist that urge, but the, the arc of how the Israelites thought of their God is interesting, because in the older parts of the Bible, he's frequently just walking around. You know, in the garden, he's like walking with Adam and Eve. Abraham argues with him and has dinner with him. Like, he's, he's a lot more approachable. Like, Moses can, like, just yell at him. And as... The, the Jewish religion evolved, and then also especially as like Greek ideas entered their their worldview, God was increasingly thought of as like impossibly far away and remote and holy, and you wouldn't bother him with things directly. This is the few hundred years before Jesus is where we really start to get like named angelic messengers like Gabriel and and Michael, and you get this idea that like there should be an intermediary because it would be totally inappropriate to directly talk to God. And into this, this worldview, Jesus comes starting his prayers with dad. And I think that that's, I think that's beautiful. And I think it again flies in the face of that, that super manly warrior worldview. Another story that I, that I think is really instructive for this is the story of Jacob and Esau in Genesis which I think a lot of people basically know, so I'm not going to spend like a ton of time retelling the, the whole contours of it, but I want to zero in on the beginning and the end of the story. So basically, it's early in the Bible. This is only the third generation of like the, the early patriarchs, and Isaac has two sons, Jacob and Esau, and from the moment they're born, they're contrasted with each other. Genesis 25 says, When the boys grew up, Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field, while Jacob was a quiet man living in tents. Isaac loved Esau because he was fond of game, but Rebekah, that's their mother, loved Jacob. So from the outset, Esau is set up as a hunter, a fighter, a man's man. Um, He's really hairy, and it's like a big plot point that he's really hairy. They go out of their way to talk about it. And then Jacob is, quote, a quiet man living in tents, which is their way of saying he's doing the women's work. He's, He's washing and cleaning and staying back. And the HarperCollins Study Bible, which is one of my favorite study Bibles, really zeroes in on this difference. It says, note that Jacob, in this respect, is allied with the feminine. He is his mother's boy. What I think is interesting here is not only that dichotomy, but also that from the outset, neither of these brothers is really presented as like the hero or the villain. The story is kind of following Jacob, so that's like sort of who we're supposed to be rooting for. But he's a trickster and a liar and what ends up happening is he steals his brother's inheritance twice and like flees town and this scene where Esau finds out that this has happened to him is actually kind of devastating it's 
the story wants to paint both of them as like fully realized characters, not not stereotypes. But to fast forward, uh, Esau swears he's going to kill his brother because he's he's betrayed him and stolen his inheritance. Jacob flees to another country. And he grows up and lives out a whole life there. He, he gets married. He starts a family. He has like 11 or 12 kids by this point. And towards the end of his story, he realizes he needs to return home. Except that the last time he was home, his brother had sworn to kill him. So he doesn't know what he's marching back into. And to fast forward all the way to the end of the story, I think at this point Jacob has learned bravery, but I think he's learned the Jesus kind of bravery, not the sword-wielding kind, because he doesn't go in looking for a fight. He goes in ready to apologize. And before he even can start whatever apology he's concocted, it reads like this, Genesis 33, but Esau ran to meet him and embraced him and fell on his neck and kissed him, and they wept. When Esau looked up and saw the women and the children, he said, who are these with you? Jacob said, the children whom God has graciously given your servant. Jacob said, truly to see your face is like seeing the face of God since you have received me with such favor. This moment where the brothers are reunited is one of my favorites in all of scripture. We don't ever really learn anything about Esau's story while Jacob's been gone. Like, I don't know what parallel adventures he's been having, but he's a really different person when his brother comes home. And it seems like whatever his life has been, it's taught him forgiveness and compassion and humility and vulnerability. And I love this as an example of masculinity because these two brothers are contrasted, but by the end of the story, they both basically get their happy ending. They're both married, they're both fathers, they're reunited, they meet each other's families. And they both get their happy ending, the the burly man's man and the quiet man, because they meet each other with openness and vulnerability. Neither one of this meeting like rides neither one of them rides into this meeting doubling down on where they left things and like I can't back off from this. I need to start this whole war up again. They they cry together, they they embrace each other. And I think it's beautiful because I know some of us are more the big hunter type and some of us are the guy who cooks and cleans, but I think this story shows that both are called to be vulnerable and open with each other and to forgive the mistakes of others. Both of these men at this point are literal fathers, and they also go on to become the fathers of entire nations. Uh, Jacob becomes Israel, and Esau becomes Edom, and both of those countries last for thousands of years. And I think by this point in the story, either one of them is a beautiful archetype of how to be a man in this world. So when we're looking for examples of how to be a strong person, whether that's a strong male, female, non-binary, gender fluid, whatever, we're just human. My hope is that we can come to understand as a culture that love is not a weakness. It's actually quite difficult to love sometimes. With that in mind, I want to be self-aware of the, the talk that we've given. The pastors that were mentioned at the beginning with the horrifying masculinity quotes, fellow humans who hold onto versions of Jesus that don't align with ours, fellow humans who persecute other humans, are also children of God who deserve love. And I'm not saying that we don't speak 
against harmful words or actions. And we don't fight against injustices. We certainly need to do that. We see Jesus doing that. But we can do it with a foundation of love. So whatever our role is in our family or society, either as father, mother, sister, brother, neighbor, friend, if we're going to only pick one or two examples from the Bible, instead of Revelation Jesus or flipping the table Jesus, maybe we should choose these ones instead. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind. Love your neighbor as yourself. Or as we sang at the beginning of service from the book of Micah, what does the Lord require of you? To act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. Let's pray. But God, we've spent a little bit of time talking about fatherhood, and, and I wanted to really draw attention to how you want us to respond to injustices in the world. And while today is Father's Day, it's also Juneteenth, an amazing victory for our country. It was a small victory in the grand scheme of things because we still have so much further to go. But God, we are, we are thankful for the opportunity to continue working toward a better home. And God, we thank you for your unconditional love as we falter along the way. And God, today as we as we think about what it means to be a good human, my prayer is that we look to the good in the Bible. We look at the examples of generosity and compassion and love. Lord God, we thank you so much for bringing us together today. Amen.